Section 19 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Section 19. The Lyric Poetry of Edward de Vere part one up to this point we have sought to rest our case upon the judgment of men of some authority in elizabethan literature another step however requires to be taken in which there is distinctly new ground to be broken and where therefore such external support can hardly be looked for this decisive step is to bring the writings of edward de vere alongside the shakespearean writings in order to judge whether or not the former contains the natural seeds and clear promise of the latter as this has never been done before being indeed the special outcome of the particular researches upon which we are at present engaged no outside authority is available and therefore all we can hope to do is to submit such points for consideration as may give a lead in this new line of investigation by which eventually we believe our case will either stand or fall so far as forms of versification are concerned de vere presents just that rich variety which is so noticeable in shakespeare and almost all the forms he employs we find reproduced in the shakespeare work when his contemporary spoke of his excellence in the rare devices of poetry we recognize at once his affinity with the master poet and the distinction between him and his rival Sidney, who headed a party that brought ridicule upon themselves by attempts to set up artificial rules that would have fettered the development of our national poetry. Towards such tongue-tying of art by authority, Oxford was instinctively antagonistic, and the rich variety of poetic forms, even in this small collection, is the natural result of the free play he allowed to his genius. At the same time, Oxford had his partialities, and the six-line pentameter stanza, with rhymes as in Venus and Adonis, was undoubtedly a favorite with him, since it appears in seven out of the twenty-two pieces that have been preserved. How great a favorite it was with Shakespeare has perhaps not been pointed out before. In addition to its employment for the first of the two long poems, we find it frequently used in his plays. Romeo and Juliet has two such stanzas, the play, in fact, ending with one of them. We find it also in Love's Labor Lost, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Taming of the Shrew, and The Comedy of Errors. In Richard II, it occurs worked into the text in such a way as easily to escape detection, the six lines beginning, But now the blood of twenty thousand men, Act Three, Scene Two. As it is not the only case of this kind, it is probable that it may be found in other plays not mentioned above. These plays, it will be observed, belong mainly to what is regarded as Shakespeare's early work. This particular form of stanza we are tempted at one time to call the De Vere stanza, for although Chaucer has a six-line stanza, it is quite different from this. 
Spencer uses it in the first part of the Shepherd's Calendar, but De Vere's work in this form had been before the public for some years before the Shepherd's Calendar appeared. There is, however, one possible competitor for the honor, and the mention of his name will introduce an interesting little point which may have a bearing upon our argument. In Dr. Grossart's collection, the poet whose work immediately precedes that of De Vere is Thomas Lord Vaux, the representative of another old family whose ancestor, like De Vere's, had come over with the conqueror. A family interesting to people in the north of England as having been lords of Gilsland. Some doubt seems to exist as to whether the poet was really Thomas Lord Vaux, who was a generation older than Edward de Vere, and who died in 1562, or his son William, who was de Vere's contemporary. It is possible that both father's and son's work appear mingled together in Dr. Grossart's collection, but the collector himself pronounces emphatically and exclusively in favor of the elder man. In this case, the honor of inventing this particular stanza must belong to Thomas Lord Vaux, unless an earlier poet should subsequently be found using it. What is of special interest is that this particular form of verse is not the only thing that De Vere appropriates from Lord Vaux. Although his own poetry is of quite a superior order to that of his aristocratic forerunner in verse-making, a close comparison of the two sets of verses as they stand together in this important collection leaves little room for doubt that, when as a young man De Vere began to write poetry, he was strongly under the influence of Lord Vaux's work, if he did not actually, as is natural to youth, take Lord Vaux as his model. Now, by a curious chance, the last poem in the Vaux collection, the poem therefore that immediately precedes the De Vere collection, is the identical song of Lord Vaux's which Shakespeare adapts for the use of the gravedigger in Hamlet. This may not have much weight as evidence. Nevertheless, if it can be maintained, as it reasonably may, that Edward de Vere, in his earliest poetic efforts, built upon foundations that Lord Vaux had laid, then the reappearance of an old song of Lord Vaux's in Shakespeare's supreme masterpiece, forty years after the death of the writer of the song, is certainly not without significance as part of our general argument. Before leaving this question of the six-lined stanza, we would point out that one feature common to De Vere and the Shakespeare work is the appearance of single isolated stanzas. For example, the only stanza in The Taming of the Shrew is in this form, and no less than three of the poems in De Vere's small collection are single stanzas of this kind. A fondness for other six-line stanzas differing in small details from this one is also characteristic of both sets of work. It is curious, too, how often Shakespeare, even in his blank verse, casts a speech or a thought into a set of six lines. Turning now to the question of the theme or subject matter of De Vere's poetry, we find that whatever its surface appearance, its underlying interest is always, as in Shakespeare, human nature. In handling this theme, figures of speech borrowed from the classics and taken for the most part from Ovid are as copious and are introduced as naturally as the ordinary words of his mother tongue, illuminating his thought as aptly as any homely simile. At the same time, we find the same Shakespearean wealth of illustration drawn from the common objects about him. Ordinary flowers, 
common materials like glass crystal amber wax sugar gall and wine and a host of other things the deer hawks hounds the mastiff birds worms the bee drone honey the stars streams hill tower cannon and so on all these images crowd his lines not as themes in themselves but as similes and metaphors for handling his central theme of human life and human nature so far as the natural disposition of the writer is concerned it is fortunate for the name of edward de vere that we have these poems collected by dr grossart and the letter included in the collection the personality they reflect is perfectly in harmony with that which seems to peer through the writings of shakespeare though in many ways out of agreement with what oxford is represented as being in several of the references to him with which we have met there are traces undoubtedly of those defects which the sonnets disclose in shakespeare but through it all there shines the spirit of an intensely affectionate nature highly sensitive and craving for tenderness and sympathy he is a man with faults but stamped with reality and truth honest even in his errors making no pretense of being better than he was and recalling frequently to our minds in the lines of one of shakespeare's sonnets i am that i am and they that level at my abuses reckon up their own as one reads the poems and then recalls particular references to him one feels that injustice has somehow been done and that a great work of rectification is urgently needed quite apart from the question of shakespearean authorship we shall now proceed to place side by side some passages from edward de vere's poetry and others from shakespeare's writing which illustrate their correspondence either in mentality or literary style beginning with the poem on women already given in full we note first of all its similarity to shakespeare's work in the general characteristics of diction succinctness cohesion and unity and also in the similes employed the word haggard a wild or imperfectly trained hawk is the word which naturally arrests the attention of the modern reader now shakespeare uses it five times and out of these no less than four are when he uses the word as a figure of speech in referring to fickleness or indiscipline in women in othello it is used identically as in the poem by de vere meaning a woman who flies from man to man if i do find her haggard though that her jesses were my dear heart-strings i'd whistle her off and let her down the wind to play at fortune act three scene three even the sentiment and idea is exactly the same as in de vere's poem like haggards wild they range these gentle birds that fly from man to man who would not scorn and shake them from the fist and let them fly fair fools which way they list in the same poem he speaks of making a disport of training them to our lure which is quite suggestive of this from the taming of the shrew act four scene one for then she never looks upon her lure another way i have to man my haggard to make her come and know her keeper's call again de vere speaks of the subtle oaths the fawning and flattering by which men train them to their lure in exactly the same vein as that in which hero in much ado says act three scene one then we go near her that her ear lose nothing of the false sweet bait that we lay for it 
I know her spirits are as coy and wild as haggards of the rock. In making this comparison, we have not had before us a large number of instances out of which it was possible to select a few that happened to be similar. What we have in this instance is, as a matter of fact, a complete accordance at all points in the use of an unusual word and figure of speech. Indeed, if we make a piece of patchwork of all the passages in Shakespeare in which the word haggard occurs, we can virtually reconstruct De Vere's single poem on women. Such an agreement not only supports us in seeking to establish the general harmony of De Vere's work with Shakespeare's, but carries us beyond the immediate needs of our argument, for it constrains us to claim that either both sets of expressions are actually from the same pen, or Shakespeare pressed that license to borrow, which was prevalent in his day, far beyond its legitimate limits. In our days we should not hesitate to describe such passages as glaring plagiarism unless they happen to come from the same pen. We shall take next some verses from a poem already referred to in a passage quoted from the Cambridge History of Literature. This is the charming lyric there mentioned, entitled, What Cunning Can Express, and which appeared in England's Helicon in 1600 as What Shepherd Can Express. How these and others of Oxford's verses have escaped for so long the attention of the compilers of anthologies is one of the mysteries of literature. The lily in the field that glories in his white, for pureness now must yield and render up his right. Heaven pictured in her face doth promise joy and grace. Fair Cynthia's silver light that beats on running streams compares not with her white, whose hairs are all sunbeams. So bright my nymph doth shine as day unto my eyne. With this there is a red exceeds the damask rose, which in her cheeks is spread whence every favor grows. In sky there is no star, but she surmounts it far. When Phoebus from his bed of Thetis doth arise, the morning blushing red in fair carnation wise, he shows in my nymph's face as queen of every grace. This pleasant lily white, this taint of roseate red, this Cynthia's silver light, this sweet fair dee spread, these sunbeams in mine eye, these beauties make me die. This is the only poem in the De Vere collection in which the writer lingers tenderly and seriously on the beauty of a woman's face, and in it, it will be observed, his whole treatment turns upon the contrast of white and red, the lily and the damask rose. It is a striking fact that the only poem of Shakespeare's in which he dwells at length in the same spirit upon the same theme is dominated by the identical contrast. This is the set of stanzas in which he deals with the beauty of Lucrece, stanzas 2, 4, 8, 9, 10, 11. Indeed, there is hardly a term used by De Vere in the poem quoted above which is not reproduced in these stanzas. Whilst drawing special attention to the red and white contrast, and to the general similarity in tone and delicacy of touch, we also put into italics a number of the subordinate outstanding words that appear in both poems. Stanza 2. To praise the clear unmatched red and white, which triumph in the sky of his delight, where mortal stars as bright as heaven's beauties, with pure aspects did him peculiar duties. Stanza 4. The morning's silver melting dew against the golden splendor of the sun. 
Stanza six, so rich a thing braving compare. Stanza eight, when beauty boasted blushes in despite, virtue would stain that o'er with silver white. Stanza ten, this heraldry in Lucrece's face was seen, argued by beauty's red and virtue's white, of either color was the other queen. Stanza eleven, the silent war of lilies and of roses, which Tarkin viewed in her fair face's field. Stanza eleven brings to a close this poem on the beauty of Lucrece, but the conception which dominates it is maintained throughout the work to which it belongs. It occurs in stanza thirty-seven. First red as roses that on lawn we lay, then white as lawn the roses took away. Stanza fifty-six. Her lily hand her rosy cheek lies under. Stanza 69. The color of thy face, that even for anger makes the lily pale, and the red rose blush at her own disgrace. That all this belongs to the personality of Shakespeare himself will be seen from the following quotations from the sonnets. Nor did I wonder at the lily's white, nor praise the deep vermilion of the rose. Sonnet 98. The lily I condemned for thy hand, the buds of marjoram had stolen thy hair, the roses fearfully on thorns did stand, one blushing shame, another white despair, a third nor red nor white had stolen of both. Sonnet 99 I have seen roses damasked red and white. Sonnet 130 It also appears in the play of Coriolanus, Act Two, Scene One. Our veiled dames commit the war of white and damask, and in love's labor lost, Act One, Scene Two, if she be made of white and red, her faults will ne'er be known, etc. A dangerous rhyme, my masters, against the reason of white and red. In Venus, this red and white contrast is mentioned no less than three times in the first thirteen stanzas. End of section nineteen.